Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Venora Bennett, and today we're discussing the economic impact of natural disasters. We'll be looking at how the economic cycle and the weather cycle will act on each other in a century of global warming. But first, how do we define natural disasters? A natural disaster is any event caused by nature that causes great damage or loss of life, such as a flood, earthquake or hurricane. Its severity is measured in lives lost, economic loss and the ability of the population to rebuild. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as global temperatures rise, the risks of natural disasters will increase. With me is Maurice Obstfeldt, Chief Economist at the IMF. He and his colleagues have been looking into the relationship between weather and wealth in their latest World Economic Outlook. Maurice, thanks for joining us. Obviously, we've heard about the hurricanes in America this summer. That's had a real economic impact, hasn't it? Oh, it has, and uh, there have also been wildfires in California. There's a lot going on. But it's actually emerging economies and low-income countries where the real issue is. According to your report, the most vulnerable of all are those countries that are in the hotter parts of the world. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, we uh, did a chapter in our New World Economic Outlook on the impact of climate change on low-income countries. Uh, we built on an existing economic literature, which indicates that the, the uh, most severe effects of uh, temperature increase on GDP per capita occur in those countries where uh, temperatures are already high. For example, um, equatorial countries, uh, countries actually throughout Africa, throughout, uh, throughout uh, Latin America, India, even Australia. So how exactly does temperature rise cause the economic decline that you're talking about? There are several channels that underlie our estimates. Uh, when it's hotter, workers become less productive. Investment, therefore, may be lower. Workers may encounter health problems, which uh, keep them off the job altogether. Um, agricultural yields may fall. One of the things that really interested me while reading the report was um, that, the, that you mm -hmm. talked about a temperature of 13 to 15 degrees, above which things start to go a bit haywire. I wondered, are the northern hemisphere countries where the EBRD works therefore protected against the effects of rising temperatures? Well, the, the uh, study that we did shows, and here we built on earlier work by uh, Ted Miguel and others, uh, that there's a nonlinear relationship between temperature and output. For uh, very um, hot countries, more temperature means lower output. For very cold countries, more higher temperature means um, more output. There's kind of this optimal temperature of 13 to 15 degrees, which is, again, it's an annual average temperature. So some people think 13 degrees is pretty pretty cool, but that's the annual average. But um, you know, the fact that, that, that um, some of your countries are in this area doesn't mean that they're protected because uh, of two reasons. First of all, the, these estimates don't capture a lot of effects that are not related to a country's own specific temperature. For example, 
global warming brings with it an increase in sea levels. And that is not restricted to countries which are in warm regions. That's the ocean. Everyone shares it. So if you look at, for example, New York City, very vulnerable, very vulnerable to that. Uh, the other issue is that there can be uh, various sorts of spillovers from distress in one region to other regions. Look at Africa, which gets hit very hard in these um, temperature increase scenarios. We know from other research that uh, warming, drought, famine, all associated with civil unrest, with in many cases mass migrations. Here you have the fastest growing population in the world. And if this is the area that's most vulnerable to extreme temperature increase, you will have people coming out of Africa, coming out of the Middle East, coming, coming north. So uh, we are really all in this together. And how much more do you actually expect the temperature to rise globally by the end of the 21st century? You had a couple of scenarios in, in the report. Well, uh, you know, as always, it, it depends. If the, if the Paris agreements are faithfully implemented and indeed made even a little more ambitious, we may be able to um, uh, restrict the temperature increase to um, something under 2%. Now, that would be great, but even that is a uh, substantial increase compared to anything we've seen in the last uh, you know, 20,000 years. It's a very sharp increase, and it will have big effects. It will hit low-income, uh, uh, warm regions very, very hard. If we do nothing, if we have business as usual, we could get increases that are, that are even bigger, say in the range of 4% centigrade. Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, those could have effects, um, you know, important nonlinear effects, tipping point effects, uh, with consequences that we, we, you know, go way beyond what our, what our estimates show. You know, our estimates capture a fairly limited range of experience and a limited range of effects. But once we get into the four degrees Celsius, five degrees Celsius, we're really in uncharted territory. Because there's simply never been anything like that before, you mean? Well, you know, if you go back to the age of the dinosaurs, Earth was pretty warm then. You know, uh, they had a very different economy from what we have and different living conditions. And so, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen this before, probably, but, but certainly not in, uh, you know, modern human history. So what, what would be the impacts that you can at least guess at for the 3.74 degree worst case scenario, bad case scenario? You know, we already see, even where we are now, um, a lot of melting of um, the North Pole, the South Pole, pieces of glaciers breaking off. Uh, this process accelerates, and we get a lot of um, uh, rise in, in sea levels. We, we potentially get a, a loss in biodiversity. I mean, we're already seeing um, coral reefs being destroyed by ocean acidification, which uh, is a result of absorption of carbon by the by the oceans the, these uh, these reefs host a lot of uh, natural aquatic life and and uh, you know a lot of that will go away one of the most worrisome uh, potential phenomena comes from uh, you know organic material that is trapped in permafrost you know this material when it is not frozen um, as it decays yields yields emissions. Uh, it's a powerful source of emissions. So if suddenly 
uh, we have a melting of the permafrost, then we're getting getting emissions from there. In fact, one of the one of the fascinating things uh, that has been demonstrated by scientists is, is that if, for example, you look at um, you know Brazil, where there's been a lot of clear cutting of um, of forests, um, the remaining organic material that's on the the forest floor, in the absence of the trees, which were absorbing carbon, is a powerful emitter of carbon. And so some of these forest areas are, are becoming, instead of being carbon uh, sinks, they're becoming carbon sources. And that's analogous to this permafrost effect. So these sorts of events can, can lead to tipping points because they feed on each other. You know, uh, organic material emits carbon. That accelerates global warming. Then you get more melting of permafrost. It's a, it's a, you know, it could unleash something that's that's pretty much irreversible, at least within the span of what's likely to be human human history. It does sound a very alarming scenario. What about on the in the economic sphere? Uh, where do you see, say, GDP going in those in those scenarios? Um, it's not good news for GDP. And again, our our uh, our estimates. I think are pretty sobering. I mean, we found that in a, uh, a uh, high temperature increase scenario of around 3.7, 3.8% by 2100, you know, the median low-income country would lose 9% of GDP. Now, we were, we were quite conservative in the way we modeled the effects of climate on output as a change in level rather than growth rates. Some economists, for example, Ted Miguel, Nick Stern, would say, it's growth rates that will be affected. If that's the case, the losses are much bigger. And uh, we don't really know enough about what happens at these very high temperatures to rule out um, a growth rate reducing scenario. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help change people's lives. We really want to hear what you think. Contact us at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook with the hashtag Pocket Economics. I'm Venora Bennett, and today we're discussing the economic impact of natural disasters with our guest, Maurice Obstfeldt. Um, Maurice, so uh, what can the countries most likely to suffer do to mute these effects? Policy settings and policy buffers that matter. You know, on the other hand, uh, it's essential that the international community support these economies in their adaptation efforts. What kind of role should they be playing? Well, under the Paris agreements, um, uh, the community of nations was uh, supposed to help low-income countries uh, with investments, uh, with funding that would allow them to uh, build infrastructure uh, that would be more more climate resilient. Um, and it's uh, you know there are various projects of this kind around the world. Uh, you know, the dual-purpose tunnel in Kuala Lumpur for handling flooding is a great example. So I think, I think uh, you know, human ingenuity can help a lot with infrastructure. But for these low-income countries, which, remember, are not significant contributors to, to global carbon emissions, you know, it's very important that we support them. Because they haven't done much to cause the problem, but they're going to bear the brunt of the consequences, is they that right? They will bear the brunt. They are already poor. They're least equipped to uh, um, handle the consequences that are going to uh, fall on them. I was interested to read that um, in the report there's a comparison of how, how an adverse weather event 
affects a hot zone in, a, in, a, in an advanced economy and um, low-income country, and that the, the presence in, in advanced economies of the buffers you're talking about um, does seem to have uh, to make things less bad. Absolutely, that's another another um, aspect of the same of the same phenomenon that um, you know having having the uh, the the resources to uh, you know handle natural disasters you know which which tends to also be true in more temperate countries really really makes a difference. So an important part of the solution if you're an at-risk country is self-service to simply develop your own economy and your own institutions as much as possible before turning to the outside world. Well, I think I think the outside world can help you uh, in that in that task, and and uh, you know it's not easy for countries at very low income levels to pull themselves up at their by their bootstra- bootstraps. So I think we should view this as a uh, you know an, an exercise in multilateral cooperation in the uh, service of the common public good. It's uh, going to be important for global stability that uh, countries that are most vulnerable adapt to climate change. Those uh, living in the rich countries are not going to be immune to the spillovers from the tragic events that might happen elsewhere. The EBRD's contribution is our Green Economic Transition Program, where we're aiming for 40% of our financing to be green by uh, 2020. And that's um, a way of helping international finance and support for, for the future. But um, globally, what kind of international financing intervention do you think is, is most appropriate and, and um, what do you recommend? Well, I think that the, the Paris commitments are a, great, are a great first step. You know, there's a growing, a growing uh, green finance movement where the, uh, you know, the private sector is um, stepping in. Usually it's, it's um, uh, people in the private sector who are sort of internalizing these global imperatives of... of um, uh, helping countries adapt or helping countries, uh, in some cases, reduce emissions to uh, provide investments that might not go there to um, uh, capital markets uh, effectively addressing climate change is just uh, just prices. You know, we haven't imposed uh, in, in hardly any countries the appropriate price of carbon that might um, lead... Um, firms to internalize the true social cost of carbon emissions and lead them to, uh, you know, to invest appropriately. This is, uh, you know, seems controversial for many, for many, for many countries, uh, you know, imposing such taxes. But, uh, you know, economists have long known that using the price system, using the market system is the most efficient way to fight pollution. Uh, You can think of climate change as a Coming from carbon pollution, so you know, I think until until we 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 can uh, get the pricing right, uh, this is going to be a challenge for for green finance. The report floated an idea about a tax of uh, with a number with five dollars a, a ton of carbon dioxide, I think, as a, as a possible solution, and said and said that was that would be a more robust way than the ways currently available to um, ensure there was a certain amount of finance. Um, and it mentioned that, that the commitments made before Paris and then at Paris, the $100 billion, is only partly for climate adaptation and overall isn't enough. Um, do you think, is the world excited or worried enough about this question yet? Well, uh, let me unpack your question a little bit. Um, 
you know, the, the importance of, of getting the price of carbon right is that you, you, you know, it, it's fine for the, the market to work on the basis of altruism, but it'll, the, the response will be much more powerful if people are being motivated by profits. And so you have to get them to do the correct, socially correct profit calculation. $5 a ton is generally far below what most estimates are of the so-called social cost of carbon, which is the global damages from a ton of carbon emissions. Uh, you know, a U.S. interdepartmental study uh, uh, under the Obama administration came up with a number closer to $40 a ton. Many would argue that that's, that that's too low. So um, getting those prices right is critical, and $5 a ton probably wouldn't, wouldn't do the job. You know, in terms of the Paris uh, commitments, uh, yeah, a lot, more, a lot more is needed than uh, what is set out there. But, you know, we're not even there, so let's do that first and then move on to more ambitious commitments. Thank you very much, Murray. That's unfortunately all we've got time for today. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com forward slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember that reviewing and rating Pocket Economics helps others to find it. Until next time, goodbye.